0: Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientists. with me, Chris Smith, and also with Ginny Smith. And you find us this week at the Cambridge Science Centre where we're recording this programme in which we're recreating a crime scene to reveal how science helps us to solve crimes in front of this wonderful audience.
1: And so our story begins... It was early this morning when the manager of the Cambridge Science Centre came upon the gruesome sight now in front of us. As she entered the centre, she was surprised to notice that the door to the office, which was normally kept locked, was wide open. Crossing the room to look inside, she almost literally stumbled across the body of Mr Wells, the centre's accountant, lying unmoving on the floor." Bending down to check his pulse, it didn't take her long to realise that the body was cold. Mr Wells was dead. Shakily, she reached for her mobile phone to call the police.
2: Hello, you're through to the police. How can
3: we help? Um, uh, just, I just got to work. I think, I think somebody's dead. He's, he's on the floor. He's not breathing.
2: OK, are you sure he's not breathing? Have you checked? Can you see his chest rising?
3: No, 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 he's definitely not breathing. Um, it looks like he's been here quite a while. He's, he's, he's not got a pulse either and he's cold. I'm pretty sure he's dead.
2: Okay, where are you? We'll get someone to you straight away. Try not to touch him or anything around him, okay?
3: Uh, yeah, yeah, well, I'm, I'm at the Cambridge Science Centre, the one on Jesus Lane.
2: Okay, somebody's on their way. Stay on the phone with me, okay?
0: So what happens when the police arrive at a crime scene? How do they protect the evidence from contamination? And what actually classes as evidence? Alan Dobson is a scene of crime coordinator with the Bedfordshire, Cambridgeshire and Hertfordshire Collaborative Major Crime Unit. Easy for you to say. Welcome, Alan. Thanks very much for joining us. So tell us, first of all, when you, when you arrive at a scene
4: like our one here, what actually do you do? Well, I think the first thing that we have to ensure is that we have complete security of the scene. You'll see here already where you've placed the body there are a number of items which I won't discuss quite yet because I don't want to come into this scene prior to making sure that it is protected. There could be untold secrets here that we can look at, that we can provide evidence for and until I have a full scenario of exactly what I believe has happened from all the people that have already been in, for example the person finding the body, maybe paramedics you can see here we've already put crime scene do not enter tape we would have somebody on the other side of that with a crime scene log. That log would show every single person coming in and out of this scene. And quite simply, until I were to arrive with a crime scene manager, absolutely nobody else comes in this scene. How do you stop it getting contaminated? Literally, by having police officers wherever we need to ensure that a particular area is guarded and anybody wanting to come in would have to have legitimate reason to. And until, as I say, I'm there, there is no reason for anybody, as long as health and safety and fire and everybody else that may need to come in to make sure safe, nobody else would be allowed in. What about the people who have to go in? The people that have to go in would look like you, Chris. Oh, Very thanks. nice in your white <laughs> suit.
0: <laughs> I um, should explain, you you have geared me up. I'm actually wearing some lovely booties, which have gone over my shoes, and I'm wearing... Uh, well, I suppose it, it looks a bit like I'm going to treat an Ebola victim, actually, a white 3M suit. And face mask, a hood?
4: Indeed, yes, everything, including your gloves, which would stop you contaminating my crime scene. What could I bring in with me that, that might contaminate your crime scene? You could bring in anything from shoe marks, if you haven't got proper protection on your feet. You could bring in DNA from not having gloves on. You could bring in DNA from, as we speak, whilst you won't see it, saliva will leave your mouth and could contaminate the body. So if we end up swabbing this deceased and finding some DNA... If it's yours, I'm not going to be very happy because I would suspect you're involved in the crime.
0: Oh dear! Um, what about the fact that um, you know people when they commit a dastardly deed, they tend to clean up after themselves, don't they?
4: Occasionally, depending on the again, depending on the type of crime scene. Um, in 31 years, I've seen basically you name it. I've seen it from putting chemicals all over to cleaning down thoroughly. Bodies even missing to the one-offs domestic type assaults and murders whereby. Everything is left exactly as it is, and somebody's probably phoned us to say, look, I'm sorry, I've committed this crime anyway. Where we don't have suspects, we may very well find cleaning up, but sometimes that's to our advantage.
0: Let's think for a minute then about what we consider to be evidence. Yes. Uh, Perhaps we could ask our audience, can we have some suggestions, please? And if you could just raise your hand, and, and Ginny will come to you. Can you suggest to us what would you think we would judge to be evidence in a crime scene? Who would like to start the ball rolling for us?
3: Amelia. Um, fingerprints. There's another one there. Millie. Hairs. I'm Tim. Footprints.
0: Any more suggestions?
3: Hi, I'm Ailish. I would say blood samples or saliva.
0: Uh, I'm Fred, uh, and I think a weapon.
4: Millie.
3: Fabric. Uh, You'd find a body sometimes.
0: (laughs) You may even find a body, and there's one more over here.
5: Sienna. A broken window.
0: Oh, broken window. These are all good suggestions, Alan. I mean, anything that people are missing that are obvious choices.
4: Within this scene itself, I would say everything that has been said is, is absolutely perfectly right. Um, points of entry, how has somebody got in? Has this person actually been murdered? Do we know that yet? Um, it's very easy for us at the moment to suspect that, but is it somebody that's maybe committed suicide? Is it somebody who's maybe eaten something? Is it a natural cause? We don't know yet. What we would do is treat this as a crime scene. Now, looking at this to start with... If I describe the scene to you on the crime scene side of the tape, we have the deceased lying face down. We have a laptop computer which appears to be under his right arm and towards his left arm, not gripping but still stood up in the position, is a flask with the lid off. Um, So initially we're looking at possibly what's on the laptop. Now under new forensics we will have to send that off. It's not something that I would look at here. But prior to doing anything with that, we'd maybe need to look at DNA, we'd need to look at fingerprints. So we would swab it, we would what we call gel lift, which is a a particular way of taking fingerprints, and really quite soon we'd get that from our crime scene to a lab for our techie experts to look into it and see what he's been looking at, what's he been dealing with. Bear in mind this is a man who's dealing with um, money and the accounts of the university. Is that something that might be in this? Is there a fraud going on? We just don't know, so we have to presume the worst. And for me, that's a really essential piece of getting that done at the scene to get away to see what we've got. And really, the next part for me is the flask. What's he been doing? Has he been drinking from it? Could it be toxic? Is there something I need to worry about? If if it is toxicology we're looking at, clearly that's not my remit here, and I know we'll come on to that later, but I would need to let the pathologist know that I've got a flask, I don't know what's in it yet. That will go to the chemical experts to tell me what we've got. And finally, we've got, of course, the whole body. Let's have a look at it. it. Is there anything else there that we may be missing? We need to look under the clothing. Could there be stab wounds? Could there be bruising? Could there be DNA on the fingers? Fingerprints, yes, that was mentioned. What about hairs? Maybe he's fought somebody. There could be somebody else's hairs within his nails. There's a whole remit. If I'm being honest with you, looking at this scene that we have here... I would estimate two scenes of crime officers probably the best part of four to six hours before they even start moving that body to get the best forensics from where we are at this time. Do you
0: take sort of video footage of yourself going through a scene these days or is it just static photographs?
4: No, we do three things now. One is normal photography, one is video and one is what we call R2S which is return to scene. It's a 3D spherical system that we would put footplates in anyway on our scene. That will enable anything that's under there that we don't know yet's there, because maybe some chemical treatment would bring fingerprints up on a floor like this. So because we don't know what's there, we would protect it by using footplates. The R2S, the return to scene photography system, would then sit on top of that, and we do a whole spherical. And we can add things to that then, so I can add evidence. We can eventually put the hard copy of photos into that to put the body to the scene. We could do... Um, the computer to show where exactly that was. And as the forensic evidence comes to us, we can then start inputting that bit of evidence. So eventually that will give you a whole scene, and that may take several weeks, several months, when toxicology comes back in, but it will give you the whole picture, which we do ultimately need to show to a jury to prove or disprove that somebody's committed a crime. Alan Dobson, thank you very much.
1: So the crime scene has been secured. Onlookers peeking through the window would catch a glimpse of a chalk outline on the floor of an almost empty room. Anything that could possibly contain evidence about the crime, Mr Wells' coffee flask, the laptop found nearby, is being sent off to various labs for testing. We'll follow the clues within some of this evidence later, but first we need to know how Mr Wells died. After all, We don't know yet whether this is just a tragic accident or something more sinister. To do this, we need to examine the body. Imagine now that you're stepping into the morgue. The air is cool and the smell of bleach hits your nostrils as you enter through the large double doors. You're surrounded by what look like stainless steel cupboard doors, each of which houses a body awaiting a post-mortem. Mr. Wells' body is on the table, a tag with his details on it, carefully tied to his toe. Apart from the bluish tinge to his skin, he looks peaceful, as if he's asleep. There are no obvious marks on the body. The pathologist lifts her scalpel.
0: Postmortems are carried out by forensic pathologists. They look first at the external surfaces of the body to check for signs of trauma. Then they examine the internal organs to piece together what might have caused someone's death. And joining us is forensics specialist Jocelyn Price, and she's from Anglia Ruskin University. Hello, Jocelyn. So, what would actually happen when our gentleman down here, who's our victim, turns up in the post mortem lab? What's the process? What do you do?
3: The most important thing would be that we could identify the body so we could ensure that it's the same one from the crime scene that's actually arrived in our mortuary. This is important because we need to be able to trace it, we need to know who's had access to him and who could obviously have planted evidence along the way onto the body itself.
0: So you get him on the slab, what do you look for? I know I said that you you look for external signs of things but what sorts of things can you pick up by just looking at someone from the surface?
3: We can get a lot of information by doing a visual examination of the body. The clothing would then be taken and exhibited separately. And then we would start to actually look at the body itself. And we would look for things like bruising, defence wounds on the forearms, defence wounds in the uh, centre of the hands, on the palms of the hands, if somebody's been attacked by a knife, bruising around the head. So all those sorts of things would be important for us to take account of during our examination.
0: Can you also get some idea as to how long someone's been dead? Because when you watch telly programmes and the detective always says, oh, when was the time of death? And this person gives a a prediction almost to the nanosecond on telly, don't they? I mean, it's obviously not as, as accurate as that, is it?
3: There are guides for us to be able to tell how long a person's been dead. We can look at the amount of decay if they've been dead quite a long time We can also look at things like rigor mortis, which sets in over certain periods and then wears off again. So that enables us to pinpoint time of death.
0: So the person goes a bit stiff and then they soften up. So if they're still stiff, you know that they've died sooner rather than later.
3: Yes, they actually go very stiff and that will wear off over time. So we've, we've got a fair idea then of the time frame that we're talking about.
0: What about simple things like just taking the temperature? Because obviously we're a big bag of water, aren't we? So it does take quite a while for a human to cool down.
3: Yes, it very much depends on the situation that they're found in and the temperature of the surrounding areas. So, for example, we would see advanced decomposition in somebody in a flat where the heating had been left on quite high. They wouldn't have necessarily been dead for as long, you know, as we would have expected. The the rate of decomposition would be much, much faster. What about telling
0: if our victim had been moved? Can you tell that by looking at them externally?
3: Uh, yes, again, we can we can pick up a lot of information about where they've been moved, what they've been leaning on, the way that the blood pools in certain areas where there's been a lot of pressure. So, for example, if somebody is laying on a, a mat with some indentation in it or something like that, quite often you can actually see that in the where the blood has pooled onto the body. You can actually pick up the pattern. So, it's very important to do a really good visual examination of the body. And what about when you get inside? Okay, so after we've made the visual examination of the outside of the body, we would then consider the internal organs. And as an example, what we've got here in this tray, we have is actually a pig pluck. We're using a pig for this. I'm relieved
0: because there is sitting in front of us on this very large black tray a whole load of what I would call the awful group of organs. (laughs) And and I was wondering where you've got them from because knowing as I do human pathology, they, they look pretty similar.
3: Yes, this is actually what we call a pig pluck so it consists of the lungs the trachea the esophagus the liver kidney and heart you can buy them from a butcher they they will come all in one piece you can buy them and we've dissected this one out slightly so that we can have a look at the separate organs they
0: taste great in haggis (laughs) so if you were actually to be faced with the remains of the internal organs of our victim how would you then approach looking at these organs what what are you looking for
3: Well, we're looking, in this particular case, we obviously don't know yet how he's died, the cause of death. So we would be looking at maybe the pathology because there's no obvious signs of death. So we'd be looking at pathology, we'd examine the heart to see if there's any signs of a heart attack. We'd look at the lungs to see if there was congestion. Yeah, we'd have a good look around at all the internal organs and see how normal they look. Obviously, these all look fairly normal, but there would be signs, if there was a heart attack, there would be signs in the heart muscle that the blood had been deprived in a dead area of muscle, so it would be obvious to us.
0: If our man had been poisoned, how might that show? Because obviously I can understand if you've had a heart attack, you might see a blood clot in a a coronary vessel, for example, and and as you say, bits of dead muscle. But how would, say, the organs be affected by poisoning?
3: It very much depends how somebody has been poisoned, how it was ingested. If they ingested it, you could find evidence of irritation in the trachea. You could find evidence of irritation in the intestines, lungs, liver damage if it was over a long time. So it very much depends on how the poison was actually taken into the body.
0: And therefore which organ gets hit the hardest? Yes. You've got some little pieces cut off here. Is that because you would, when you did the the sort of gross examination of the organs, you'd then take some smaller samples for further examination?
3: Yes, so when we have a look, we what we would do is remove the samples, remove the organs here, and we could bread slice them and actually have a look at the cut surfaces all the way through to identify any areas of damage.
0: We're looking at the lung here, and you, you've cut the lung into sort of one centimetre wide lumps.
3: Yes, That's so we can have a look all the way through it. And we would do exactly the same with the heart. We would open up the heart and have a look at the the walls, the ventricles, the atria, and have a look all the way around to see what sort of damage there was. So if, for example, somebody had been stabbed, then we might see damage in the lungs or in the heart, the evidence of the stab wound.
0: How do you actually record your findings? Do you have to take photographs so that when Alan needs his evidence, you're able to show him the physical pictures of what this person looked like inside to account for their death?
3: Yes, yeah, so we would um, take photographs of anything that we found, and also there would be a report constructed of everything that we found. So, yeah.
0: So, let's turn one of our audience into an amateur pathologist. What's your name? Nicole. Nicole, you've suited and booted. Yep. That's lovely. And you've got purple gloves on. That's, that's okay. terrific. So, what would you like to find out about first?
1: Let's have a go at the heart. <laughs> it's quite dense,
3: quite heavy. How
0: much do you think that weighs? A
3: couple of pounds. This is probably about right. Yes, mm-hmm. it's it's a it's a small but very very dense, very heavy organ, yeah. Compact muscle and you can see the different compartments as well quite nicely. I guess. So, so we've got the atria here at the top and then we've got the ventricle lower down. Obviously, it's very dense because it's designed to pump the blood around the body, so it has to be very strong to be able to do that. So this would be the same size as a human heart approximately? Slightly bigger than that, but yeah.
0: What about uh, the other, what else can you see there, Nicole?
3: So these are the lungs.
0: Is that what you expected a lung to look like?
1: Um, well, obviously it's chopped up, so I would hope my lungs wouldn't look chopped up. But it's, it's very light, it's a lot lighter than I thought they would look, a lot less
3: dense muscle. Yeah, I guess I would imagine the lungs to look a bit like this as a whole. It's a lot lighter because it's full of air. Um, So essentially, it's just lots and lots of very tiny balloons with very fine membranes because it's obviously involved in gases exchange. So they are very light. They're they're much bigger than the heart, but they're much, much lighter because they're full of air. Yeah, very squidgy.
0: Give Nicole a round of applause, please. (laughs) (laughs) What about if you do all this and you think, well, actually, to all intents and purposes, these organs look pretty normal and i can't see any signs of trauma what do you do ne- next
3: in the case of, of our young man down here what we would do is we would submit blood samples to the laboratory and also the stomach contents to laboratory as well so it would go off and be dealt with separately away from the mortuary
0: jocelyn price thank you very much
1: the pathologist has finished her work and filed her report In his cramped and chaotic office, Detective Collins begins to read. His brows furrow in puzzlement. There were no physical marks on the body, and all Mr Wells' organs look normal. So how did he die? Realising there's nothing more to learn from the report, he leans back in his chair and shuts his eyes. He will just have to wait for the rest of the lab reports to come in.
0: You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and also with Ginny Smith, and this week we're taking a journey through the science of a criminal investigation, reconstructing our very own crime scene in front of this wonderful audience. Still to come, we'll be finding out how the randomness of numbers might give away if you've been cheating on your tax returns, and we'll be putting a member of our audience into a lie detector suit. But first, let's get back to the lab.
1: The lab is spotless and almost unbearably bright as sunlight floods in through the large windows onto the white surfaces. The toxicologist is busy analysing samples of Mr Wells' blood, stomach contents and other fluids found at the scene to see if there are any traces of chemicals that shouldn't be there. She lifts one tube to look in more detail at the contents. Might she have found some evidence of foul play?
0: There are many, many things that are toxic to humans that can cause death if we ingest them in high quantities. These might not cause visible signs that show up in a post-mortem, though. So how do we detect them? Sarah Hall is from Anglia Ruskin University. Hello, Sarah.
5: Hi, Chris.
0: (laughs) So what sorts of chemicals can you detect?
5: Oh, all kinds of things. Natural products, obviously more synthetic drugs. All kinds, yeah.
0: And how do you go about doing that normally?
5: Well, we first do preliminary tests, which tend to be colour tests, that give you a positive ID. More about the class of the drug rather than the specific drug. So when
0: you say a colour test, are are you saying you literally take a sample from a person and you mix it with something, and if a chemical is there, a drug is there, it will produce a colour that you can see?
5: Yes, it will, yeah.
0: Okay, and how does that work?
5: There's different reactions, there's lots of different tests but it involves a fair amount of sort of complex chemistry but the idea of them is they work quite fast. I mean you can do it at a scene, it's in situ and they give a bright colour very quickly so it's very obvious if you get a positive.
0: So what sorts of specimens can you test?
5: Well we can test urine, we can test blood, we can even test hair. Hair's quite good because it gives us a sort of a longer time frame to looking at Maybe the victim themselves are, are maybe an abuse of drugs, etc. So
0: How does that work? How does the hair end up being useful?
5: Well, there's certain chemicals in your hair that allow things to be trapped in it and they sort of bond quite tightly so they remain in your hair for a long time.
0: The chemical would therefore go round in your bloodstream and because the hair is growing right. inside your body and then coming out, the drug in your bloodstream gets incorporated inside the hair, is that what you're saying, and yeah, you can pick that correct, up?
5: Chris, yes, we can.
0: And so can you tell roughly how much someone has been using a drug?
5: Yes, we can. We can quantify it.
0: Yeah. Wow, OK. Shall we have a go? Have you got anything yeah. you can show us?
5: I've got some uh, little colour tests to have a look and if somebody wants to come and have a look at it, they're most welcome. What's your name? Millie.
0: OK, so while Millie gets her gloves on, just talk us through, please, Sarah, what, what we've got here. So you have got a little china plate with lots of little indentations in it, little yes. wells, and and a big box with... what? Well, oh, it says there's some dangerous drugs in here. Yes, wow. Right, we so what are we going to do?
5: Well, the, the first test is a test that can be used in a crime scene straight away. So you don't need to be a chemist to do this sort of thing. And it's just a, a glass ampule that's got a specific reagent in that reacts with certain... Classes of drugs. So this Which is, drugs are you going to look for? We're looking for opiates. So I've got an opiate with me. So let's see if we get a nice colour change.
0: Or do you want to test any of the audience?
5: No, I better <laughs> not. I better not.
0: <laughs> sure, you would find nothing. So you are taking out from the box, you've got a little ampoule there, and this is the, the reagents, the thing that's going to react with yes. the drug molecules if they're there.
5: I'm just going to find myself a pipette.
0: It's a little glass pipette to, to draw up. A little up.
5: spatula because you don't need much a really small amount gives you a really good colour change, which is one of the very good tests.
0: OK, so we're going to mix some of the... You've, you've brought along, obviously, some opiate chemicals uh-huh. to, to show us that yeah. this actually works.
5: So we've got a glass ampule, and so it's got reagent in So you can, can you see the solid in it, Millie? Yeah. So what you do is you break the top off, put a small amount of powder, but you could also put a liquid in, put the top on, give it a shake, and you should get a nice purple colour. OK,
0: let's have a go. So at the moment, this ampule has just got clear, colourless fluid in it. That's the top coming off the glass ampule, and you've got your pot of opiate. And does um, the policeman? Do you know, there's a policeman here. I
5: do. I'm keeping quiet. Okay. I'm keeping quiet.
0: Wow, that 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 really is a very tiny amount you've put in. Yeah, literally, yeah, a couple yeah. of grains of yes. the the agent. Yeah, milligrams.
5: Okay. You hardly need any.
0: Okay, uh, so we're going to shake that up.
5: You should start seeing a purple colour coming through.
0: Tell us what you're seeing, Millie.
5: At the bottom, the bubbles are turning purple. Yeah.
0: A very very bright purple. It is a
5: very bright purple, so that tells me there's an opiate there. And how much
0: can it, or how sensitive is this? How much can you pick up?
5: They are quite sensitive, but the actual instrument techniques that we use are very sensitive too. um, But they have to be sensitive, you know, because most street drugs are very dilute. They're diluted with some really nasty dilutants and all kinds of things. So, yeah, they have to be quite sensitive.
0: Thank you very much. Millie, do have a seat. If you use that at the scene of the crime, that would give you an indication of what was going on, but it obviously wouldn't tell you exactly what the agent was. It would tell you it was a a class of agent, like an opiate or something, but you'd like to probably know more accurately what it was. So what can you do to get a more accurate chemical diagnosis of what's going on?
5: Well, so we do analytical tests. So the most techniques that are used in forensic science tend to be chromatography techniques because most drugs are fairly complex there's a lot of things in street drugs so you try and separate everything out so you're able to just look at the thing you're interested in which is what the chromatography does
0: how does that work what is chromatography
5: well it's just separation so i've got some pictures to show you actually if you want to see them but that'll
0: that'll be good for the radio
5: um (laughs) um, what we call a chromatogram because it's chromatography
0: okay This is a. It looks like a graph, effectively. There are lots of little peaks. It's like like little teeth on a in a (laughs) shark's mouth, actually. So, what are those little peaks?
5: Well, these. This is a chromatogram of petrol. There's over 200 components in petrol, so we need to separate them all out before we can identify all the individual components.
0: I see, so you would feed a sample into the machine and it breaks it up into all of the individual components so you can see when someone has been exposed to something, you won't just say, it's opiates, you'll know all the different chemicals that are in there. Yes,
5: and we have a detector on it, which is a really good detector. It's called mass spectrometry, but basically how I understand it, it's like getting a hammer and smashing a molecule apart. And how the molecule breaks apart is indicative to that molecule. Only certain molecules break in certain ways. And if we know that, we can then do a positive identification.
0: Does that mean you could, for instance, if you had a sample of some drugs in an environment and you had a sample from the person, you'd be able to marry up almost the chemical profile in the drugs and the environment with the chemical profile from the person and prove that one had led to the other.
5: Yes, I mean, we don't, we don't just look for the drug, we look for everything else that's there too, and it enables us to do that, the chromatography.
0: And what sorts of things can one probe? It's, it's not just illegal drugs you could look for. What, what else could you look for with these sorts of techniques?
5: i do a fair amount of ignitable liquid, so accelerant analysis is a good one, fire debris analysis... So if
0: it wasn't something that was a routine chemical that had killed our victim, mm. but it was something a little bit more unusual, yeah. you could still find the molecule?
5: We could. It'd take a bit longer because it'd be like looking for a needle in a haystack a little bit, but, yeah, we could.
0: Because it would stand out as one it of those peaks, out, yeah. because it wouldn't normally be in the body, and you'd see something that, sh- that was yeah. there that shouldn't be. Yeah. Sarah Hall from Anglia Ruskin, thanks very much.
5: Thank
1: Back in Detective Collins' paper-strewn office, things haven't progressed much. He's certain there's something fishy about this case, but he just can't seem to put his finger on it. The smell of stale coffee lingers in the air, and he gets up from his desk to open a window. Suddenly, a junior officer appears in the open doorway and hands him the toxicology report. Detective Collins scans the pages quickly. He knew it. Someone did want Mr. Wells silenced. His blood was found to be laced with digitoxin, a potent poison that causes death by interfering with the normal rhythm of the heart. So that's why there were no physical signs of damage on the body. Detective Collins had read about a case of digitoxin poisoning before, years ago when he'd first joined the police. The toxin is found in digitalis plants, or as they're more commonly known, foxgloves, and it can be extracted in the kitchen without specialist equipment. The tests from Mr Wells' flask also showed high levels of the toxin. It seems someone brewed the unfortunate accountant a not-so-pleasant cup of tea. Detective Collins puts down the report and smiles. Now he's getting somewhere. It's two weeks now since Mr Wells' body was discovered. Detective Collins is proud of his team. They've been working hard and have made some progress. They identified witnesses who claimed to have seen someone picking flowers in a field where foxgloves are known to grow. Now the witnesses are at the station being interviewed. Detective Collins walks across the landing and into the observation room. He can see the witness through the one-way mirror and his hopes quickly fade as he realises they aren't going to get a positive ID. The witness looks uncomfortable on his orange plastic chair and just shakes his head when shown pictures of the Science Centre staff. The detective sighs frustratedly. This guy's office overlooked the fields where the foxgloves grow and he claims to have seen someone picking them the day before the murder. So how can he not remember who it was he saw?
0: How indeed. But if I asked you what you were doing during a 45-minute period on a Saturday afternoon three weeks ago, how much would you remember? Unless there was something special happening, like it was your birthday or something really bad had happened, then the chances are you're not going to remember very much. You might be able to say, I usually visit my grandma on a Saturday afternoon, so I was probably with her. But the specific details are probably a bit hazy. Here to explain why our memories are not like taking a video of our experiences that we can just replay and how this can affect criminal investigations is John Simons and he's from the Memory Laboratory at Cambridge University. (laughs) How does memory actually work? How does my brain store a memory of what I've been doing, where I've been, what I've done?
2: Everything that we experience, everything that we witness, is registered in the brain to some degree. But it's only really if we're aware that something's important that we'll process it further and pay attention to it. And then that information can then be processed in further parts of the brain.
0: What actually physically is a memory?
2: A memory is a set of neural processes that occur that contain the features of an experienced event. So, for example, the things that we've seen, the things that we've heard, smells, perhaps our thoughts and reactions when we experience the event as well. And generally this is represented in various different parts of the brain. So there are bits of the brain towards the back, for example, that process visual information, parts of the brain around the ears that process auditory information, for example, and we store those features there. And then when we're trying to remember an event, we use a bit called the hippocampus, which is towards the middle of the brain, And that is involved in bringing together all these different features and kind of binding them together into a single memory so we're able to relive a previous experience as it unfolded.
0: Is it a bit like then if I go to the library and I want to know, this is in the good old days, not, not so much now, but you go to the library and you say I want to know where book X is and they've got a sort of card file system and you flick through the card file and it tells you which shelf on which part of the shelf you will find the book you're looking for. Is a part of your brain like the card file and it roots your request for the memory to the part of the brain that stores that particular recollection?
2: That's what people think the hippocampus is probably doing. So this is a region that's very much a kind of card file system. It's something that enables you to know know where these different aspects of a memory might be stored and to be able to hopefully retrieve them reliably later on.
0: Now, the crux of this is how accurate are those memories?
2: Memories vary in terms of accuracy. For one thing, if somebody is aware of that something they're experiencing is important, then they might attend to it more closely. They might think about it more deeply, and that's likely to lead to a more reliable memory later on. But then we know that, as you said, memory is not about retrieving a videotape and replaying it. We would think of it as a reconstructive process at the time of retrieval. So when at the time of, that we're trying to remember something, we go in and we try and retrieve those various small aspects of memory, the, the, a visual image or a sound or something, and we try to reconstruct that into a, a, a memory at the time of retrieval. And therefore, the way in which we remember can be very much influenced by our expectations or our biases or our thoughts at the time of retrieval.
0: Well they say a story always improves with the telling so the more you run over something in your mind can you almost begin to persuade yourself that something that maybe wasn't true or wasn't there is true and was there.
2: Absolutely, and that's a real problem, of course, for eyewitness testimony, in that we have to be very careful when people are interviewing uh, witnesses, for example, not to introduce other information, for example, by some kind of a leading question that might influence their memory. And then as that is retrieved over multiple times, that can strengthen that memory and it can become a very, very confident memory and absolute, you know, sure recollection that, yes, I definitely did see that event in the way that is based on that leading question.
0: Actually, could it be that we're biasing our witnesses by the way we ask them questions and ask them to recall information and the environment in which we get them to do that recall in a a stressful court they could actually be remembering or misremembering what's going on.
2: Absolutely and this is something that has been a very big concern for quite a long time and Now, police officers are trained to be very careful about this sort of thing, to be very careful about the way in which they question witnesses. And also, in court situations, lawyers and judges have to be very careful in the way that they would cross-examine a witness, for example, to make sure that they're not biasing the way in which the witness remembers a previous event.
0: Is there anything practical we could do with this audience to convince them of how easy this is to do?
2: Absolutely. So what we've got is a list of words we're going to try to get our audience to remember and I need a volunteer from the audience who has very clear handwriting, preferably.
0: What's your name?
5: Siana. How old are you? Eleven.
2: And you're eleven, and
0: you have immaculate handwriting, we're told. Mm, Probably. We're going
2: to find out. Okay, Siana. so what I'm going to ask you to do, I'm going to read out 15 words, a list of words, and I want you just to write them on that piece of paper that's in front of you. And, audience, I want you to try to remember these 15 words. I'm going to be testing your memory a little bit later on. Door. Glass. Pain. the next one is shade, ledge, sill, house, open, curtain, frame, view, breeze, sash, screen, shutter. Now, don't show the words to the audience for the moment. What we're going to do is test your memory for those words. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read you out some words. And if you think that word was present on the list, I want you to shout Yes. Door. Was door present on the list? Yes! Quite convincing, yes. What about the word banana? No. No. Pretty unanimous no there. What about the word window? Yes! Yes. No. No, 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 no. Ah, very good. So we've got some very good potential witnesses here, but I think probably, what do you think, 50% of the audience said yes to window? There was certainly a gentleman at the front here said no pretty quickly, so it would make an excellent witness. So what this shows is that even a word that wasn't on the list, most people can think and often can be very confident, it was present. And the reason for that is, of course, because all the words on the list related in some way to the word window. And so over those repeated instantiations of words that meant something to do with window, then you find that you have this expectation that window must have been on that list. And so most people are going to falsely remember the word window.
0: Shall we just prove to the audience, can you just hold up your list of words and you will see the word window isn't there how many people actually genuinely thought just hold your hands up who thought that the word window was on the list you'd heard more than half the audience thought that they'd heard the word window and it's clearly not one that Siana wrote down thank you very much give her a round of applause What about the whole process of forgetting? Because there was a bit of research just been published showing that uh, actually when you recall one memory, this can make you actively forget another one. So by asking people to dwell on just one set of what the police might think are relevant facts in a case now, in fact, they may be deleting from their memory other salient information that they want to later rely on in court, but then it's gone.
2: When you remember something, you actively suppress competing or interfering memories that are similar to that memory. This can be a very useful function because it means that when we really want to remember something we've got a better chance of being able to remember that thing in future and not sort of have our memory made unreliable by interfering competing kinds of information. But it does mean that if you're repeatedly questioned about the same thing over and over and over again you're going to be less likely to be able to remember some other facts about that crime that you might later actually be really useful bits of information that would have been useful to the police people here, what, what could they do, what can any of us do to make sure that we don't fall
0: prey to misremembering things in the way that you've demonstrated that more than half of us do?
2: Well, it's very difficult. As we showed, it's a very difficult effect to, even if you know that this effect is is present, uh, it's something that's very difficult for us to to avoid falling prey to. So the only things you can really do are to pay close attention to things you want to remember. If there's something you're really interested in remembering, thinking about it deeply, thinking about it, again, with associated information, things that you know that, you know, for example, the person that you saw doing a crime might look like, uh, someone else you know, for example, might be a useful strategy. Those sorts of things, relating it to other things you know are going to be useful, but also write it down as soon as you can. If, there's a, uh, some, if you think you've witnessed a crime and you might not be questioned for a long time, write down all the information that you can remember straight away, because that's more likely to be accurate and reliable than something you might tell someone in a few hours' time. John Simons, thank you very much.
1: The detective paces up and down his tiny office impatiently. It only takes a few steps to travel from one side to the other, but he finds it helps him think. He now knows how Mr. Wells died, and it seems likely that the murderer extracted the poison from foxgloves picked in a nearby field. But he's still no closer to solving the case. What he needs is a motive. Detective Collins looks at his watch and decides to head over to the forensic computing department before heading home for the night. The technical team have been working non-stop on the laptop found at the crime scene and just might have something that could shed some light on the situation. The computer lab is in the basement. As Detective Collins steps out of the lift, he can hear the hum of electronics and the tapping of computer keys. Good, he thinks, they haven't left yet. He enters the lab and his eye is drawn to the case file lying on the desk nearest the door. He picks it up and begins to leaf through it. Most of it is unintelligible, but after a few minutes he realises what it's saying. Mr Wells had discovered a problem with the science centre's accounts. Someone had been cooking the books. Now he has his motive.
0: There's a mathematical phenomenon that shows that the universe might not be as random with its numbers as we would think. Now, I'm sure most people would expect that if you took all of the numbers that appeared in a newspaper or, for instance, on our website, that they would have a random distribution. There'd probably be about the same proportions of numbers that start with a one or a two or a three and so on. David Spiegelhalter, though, uh, joins us now to tell us why this isn't actually the case. David, they say smart question deserves a smart answer. Why don't we start with an example, though? Can you demonstrate this phenomenon
6: for us? Well, when the people came in the, uh, this evening, uh, we asked them to record their house number. And uh, I think those, those all went on to the uh, computer. But when we look at the first digit of each of these house numbers, so that would be 118844441 four, here, let's look at what pattern those digits form. Okay, what we see among the house numbers is that out of 25 numbers, 11 of them started with a 1. Three of them began with a 2, 2 began with a 3, 4 began with a 4, and then just 5 began with an 8. And if we look at that, we've got a little graph here that shows this distribution of the first digit of the house numbers, and it clearly is not equally spread between 1 and 9. There's a great preponderance for low numbers to start up, in particular for number 1. And uh, that's an example of, a very rough example, of what's called Benford's Law. Now, Benford's law says that numbers of many quantities are not randomly distributed. If we took the length of rivers, if we took um, how much people earn, if we took the uh, number of books in libraries, we took the number of people living in cities and looked at the first digit of each of those numbers and plotted them out in a graph like this, they would all have a similar pattern, with the most common number starting with one. In fact, 30% of numbers... of all numbers begin with one. Isn't that extraordinary? And 18% begin with two, and so on and so on. In fact, 13% begin with three, and it goes down and down and down. And that distribution of numbers just occurs again and again and again.
0: And that's known as Benford's Law. Benford's Law. So if one were to take any natural phenomenon, including accountants' records, then one should see that pattern present there.
6: You've got to have numbers that cover a very wide range. If I just asked you your height in feet, then most of you would give me four, five, or six, or something like that. So that wouldn't be very, that wouldn't work at all. They've got to be something with a really big spread of numbers, such as lengths of rivers. In fact, it's quite remarkable it worked with houses quite so well. So that was lucky. Um, so, but um, for accounts or numbers in where you might have very small numbers or very large amounts, it works brilliantly. And Benford's law is used as a tool to detect. people people fiddling accounts. Why should it be useful for detecting
0: people fiddled accounts? Because wouldn't they just know that?
6: Well, it's quite difficult to to reconstruct figures that obey Benford's law. What you're
0: saying is when people fiddle the books, they try to choose numbers that they think look plausible, but in fact they're not.
6: And and the classic example of that was when people looked at the uh, Greek national accounts for for 2000, um, when they were under a lot of scrutiny and they were putting in Uh, For EU monitors in 2008, for example, they looked at all the numbers in the Greek national accounts and 34 percent of them began with a two, which is almost double the amount it should. It should only be 18 percent begin with a two and that uh, was you know, considered clear evidence that people were essentially making up the figures. Let's think there were lots of numbers in accounts, and they were in pounds, and I wanted to translate them into uh, another unit, you say dollars, and let's pretend there's two dollars to the pound. All those numbers would double. Now, if actually numbers didn't obey this law, and there were equal numbers in those accounts, beginning with one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, you realise all the numbers, the amounts that started with a five to a nine, when you doubled them, changed them into dollars, would all now begin with a one so you get a completely different distribution coming out just by changing the currency you get a completely different distribution but if the numbers obey benford's law you can change the currency and they still obey benford's law that's where the mathematical form for benford's law comes from it's what's called an invariant distribution you can change the units you can change lengths of rivers from miles to kilometers to inches and they'll still all obey benford's law it's quite it's a Absolutely beautiful bit of mathematics. And the police do actually use this? This is used for for, you know, for forensic accounting work, yes. The clincher, though, why does this apply? Why does that happen? Ah, oh, that's a really difficult thing to say. That's why the usual way you explain it is say, well, if it didn't, you'd end up with the... When you change currencies, you would end up with a different distribution. It's almost like saying, if, the, if it is going to have a distribution, it must obey Benford's law. That's not a very good answer, is it?
0: Uh, I'll ask the question again. So um, why does this apply? Why, why do we see this?
6: You can say, you say it's, a, it's a natural way that, that numbers you know, cluster. You, get, you have to work away all through the ones before you get to the two. So if you think of the length of a street, then you, you get them up to 100. But then for the next big jump of street, length of streets, they're all going to be, begin with 100. And so a street is not equally likely to be half a mile as long as 100 miles long.
0: So more, there are more things that are in small numbers... Than there are things that are in big numbers, and therefore the small numbers, starting with the one, for example, are going to crop up more often.
6: I guess you could say
0: that. David Spiegelhuter, thank you very much. <laughs>
1: Detective Collins smiles to himself as he reviews the case. He understands now that Mr Wells had noticed the numbers in the Science Centre's accounts looked too random to be real. They just didn't fit Benford's distribution. Whoever was responsible for the dodgy accounting must have wanted to ensure that Mr Wells didn't reveal what had been going on. The detective looks at his notes and realises that there are only a few people who had access to the science centre's accounts. His list of potential suspects had just reduced dramatically. Detective Collins presses the intercom button on his desk and asks his team to join him in his office. It's time to bring in the suspects for questioning.
0: You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Ginny Smith. And this week we're taking a journey through the science of a criminal investigation.
1: Detective Collins walks the long corridor distractedly. He oversaw the questioning of the witnesses and the suspects himself, and he's convinced he's found the killer. Unfortunately, the suspect is claiming her innocence and saying she was home at the time of the murder. The detective is convinced that this is a lie. He can spot a liar a mile off. If only there was some way he could prove that she wasn't telling the truth, then they would have enough evidence to make an arrest.
0: Now, you've probably all seen people being put up against a lie detector machine. This is also known as a polygraph test to determine if what they're saying is a lie. Is it really that simple in real life, though? How much can our subconscious behaviour really give away? Dr Sophie van der Zee from the Computer Laboratory at Cambridge University is here to tell us how she's been using motion detection equipment to see if someone is actually seeking to deceive. Sophie, welcome. Sophie, welcome. You have brought with you a victim extracted from our audience who actually looks a bit like something out of a Terminator movie. What's going on?
7: Well, hopefully it's the suspect and not the victim. (laughs) But he does actually look a bit like a movie character, which is sort of true, because usually this type of motion capture equipment is used in Hollywood movies to make animations more human-like. So So
0: let's just describe what we're seeing here. You have this gentleman who's wearing his everyday clothes, but strapped onto him are orange boxes, one in The middle underneath his neck, one on the top of each arm, one on each wrist, one on each hand, on his feet, knees. What's in these boxes?
7: These are called inertial sensors. And what they basically do is together they send a 3D image of how he looks like. As you can see here on the screen, he looks like a skeleton man via these receivers to the laptop.
0: So this gadgetry that he's wearing is beaming movements that are being picked up by these orange boxes back to your laptop. And it's then superimposing those movements onto this mannequin that we're seeing on the screen behind us.
7: Yes, that's correct.
0: Right, well, let's see this in in action then, Sophie. So what we've got, we've we've put Nick on our virtual dance floor. Projected onto a very large screen behind us is a mannequin like you would draw in art classes, which is showing all the bits of his body. Tell us what we're actually seeing projected here.
7: Yeah, Um, well, you can see a skeleton man. You can see that you have 17 sensors on your body. So what this sort of does is it transmits all the information about where he is in the room and where every sensor is as opposed to all the other sensors. So that's global and local position. And together that sort of gives you this image of the skeleton man in a 3D space. If you would be working in Hollywood, you would not be really interested in the skeleton man. You want to see Gollum up here. So, okay, we now know how it looks like in person, we know how it looks like on the screen, sort of a skeleton um, that moves around with five um, green dots. The question, of course, now is, <laughs> how well can you dance? <laughs> OK, wow, very well. OK, like a Saturday night fever is happening right here. Very impressive. <laughs> are you guys proud of your father? Maybe we should uh, ask how your children are feeling right now.
5: <laughs> yeah, and he, he likes going on stage quite a lot, so that's why...
7: Wow. Um, Do you recognise him in here?
3: Not really. He looks like in a film where they'd put maybe a Spider-Man suit on him and he could fly.
7: Wow. So I think you're your son's (laughs) new hero. Okay. well, thank you very much.
0: So how is this going to flush out if this bloke did the deed?
7: We did some experimental research where we had a lot of different suspects um, stealing some money. And we um, found that people who actually stole the money moved about twice as much as people who didn't.
0: They were literally kind of a bit anxious, dancing on the spot, were they?
7: Yeah, but without necessarily seeing it, because I calculated the behavioural differences between truth tellers and liars... And I then went back to the video data to see if I actually saw that liars move more, but I didn't really see that. Even when what I what sorts
0: that. of movements?
7: That was actually very consistent across all the body parts. So for the head, the arms, the trunk and the legs. For example, when we were talking doing the interview about one of the two tasks, the people who were lying literally moved twice as much than the people who were telling the truth, and that was about twelve centimeters per second over their entire body.
0: Is this, what, just more stereotypical things like crossing, uncrossing your legs, shrugging your shoulders? Or is it more subtle, fine movements that you wouldn't necessarily pick up on?
7: It's any type of movement. And I think this is why we've been finding these uh, results. So far, most psychologists have actually looked at movements by coding video data. And whenever you code, you usually say, does someone move his right hand, yes or no? But you don't include how big this movement is. And you also don't take into account all the small movements people make all the time. So we thought, what if we literally move every millimetre that people move around, if we measure that, and then see how much people actually move? Because that's been a very big question in deception research for decades.
0: The idea then, you would bring in the possible perpetrator... Wire them up like this. And what do you do? Do you just observe them when you're just talking to them and ask them random questions, how old they are, where they live and that kind of thing, where they're not lying, and then compare the number of movements then with the number of movements when you then start probing them about the crime? I mean, how do you establish a baseline for what's normal for them? How do you know someone isn't just very jittery?
7: So what you've just been describing is what happens with the polygraph. I have to say, because we've only done a first few sets of experiments, we haven't actually tried to figure out how we can maximise our results on an individual level. So what type of questions to ask is something we're actually going to investigate over the next couple of months. So what you've been describing definitely works. I don't know if it works for this technique, or maybe we have to do something else.
0: Would this be practical in a crime detection situation? Do you bring all your suspects in and make them look like this gentleman? What's your name, by the way? Nick. Did you expect this, Nick, when you turned up here this evening? Uh, not exactly, but <laughs> it's very fashionable. It looks pretty good. I mean, certainly a talking point. It'd be a conversation starter at a party, wouldn't it? Uh, but is this how you'd see this being used?
7: No. <laughs> this is an inertial system that works with sensors. But, of course, if you ever want to use this in practice you can't actually ask a suspect to put this suit on because A, no one will want to, and B, it takes a lot of time. So what we're currently doing in the lab here in Cambridge is investigating if there is any alternative way of measuring movement without having to sort of touch someone, so unobtrusively. And um, We got some equipment from all kinds of BA, the Army. Um, we have radars, we have time-of-flight cameras, and we're now creating one big testbed to find out how else we can measure movement
0: literally watch what a person does and use a computer to log that rather than wire them up in this way and then they wouldn't even know that they're being effectively monitored would they
7: yeah that's
0: but returning to my point if someone's just nervous because they've got someone grilling them like alan's a big bloke he looks pretty scary if, if he's grilling someone how do you dissect away the nervous effects of them being grilled by a police officer from just the fact that they're telling porkies?
7: I hope that with our technology that actually isn't an issue because we've been finding that although anxiety might affect how someone behaves, that's not what's causing the difference between truth tellers and liars. But it is one of the main criticisms about uh, using the polygraph when you're comparing sort of control questions with critical or target questions that, of course, they're quite good at detecting deception because whenever you're lying, you usually get a bit more anxious. But then some people who are actually innocent can become very anxious as well because someone is just asking you about if you've murdered this person so any normal person will get a bit sort of anxious about that so that actually is a problem but because our movements were not actually caused by anxiety I'm hoping that we can protect innocent people by using this method.
0: Could I train myself not to move more often so I could become really good at lying?
7: So with nonverbal cues to deception, behavioral control is definitely one of the things that makes our job very difficult because some people might find it very hard to lie and experience a lot of cognitive load, whilst other people get a bit more emotional or anxious. But some people can sort of step over that and control their behavior and they'll try to appear as honest as they can. We haven't tried it yet with this suit, but one of the benefits of getting some media attention is that I actually have newspaper articles about our research. So one of the things I want to do next, but anyone who will be my participant, please don't listen... is give half of the participants the newspaper article about a research that says that liars move more and the other half we won't give this uh, this newspaper article and then see what they do because what i think they will do is try to sort of beat the system and i think that they'll try to move less but now the question is if we can detect if them liars moving less as a countermeasure differs from actual truth telling behavior so we were hoping to create software That gives sort of a green light for whenever uh, someone seems to be telling the truth, a red light for whenever they seem to be lying, and then sort of an orange amber for whenever they are a bit suspicious because they're moving way too much or way too little to sort of fit the system. So that means you need to keep talking.
0: And what do the police tell you about this? Do they seem enthusiastic or are they a bit sceptical? Or wouldn't they tell you the truth?
7: <laughs> <laughs> no, I've actually had quite positive responses from the police. The local police here also offered us access to a sex offender sample so we can actually start testing this not just on students and general public. And one of the <laughs> criticisms you always get when you do this type of research is but what happens when you test the type of people that are usually interviewed by police officers. So hopefully that's uh, also one of the things we'll be doing this year.
0: From Cambridge University, Sophie van der Zee. Thank you very much. <clears throat>
1: Detective Collins leans back in his chair and breathes a long sigh of relief. It's been a challenging one, but the case of poor Mr. Wells is finally closed. He takes one last look at his summary of the case. The evidence revealed that Mr. Wells was poisoned with digitalis brewed into a deadly tea. He'd been getting close to finding out who had been playing around with the accounts at the science centre, and this was likely the reason for his untimely death. The main suspect was identified through careful interviewing and witness testimony and the latest breakthrough in lie detector technology suggested that she might not be as truthful as she claimed. The evidence had been compiled and would soon be presented in court for the jury to judge whether she was guilty or innocent. For now at least, Detective Collins' job was done.
0: And of course we couldn't have gotten to the bottom of this terrible crime without the help of our experts and I hope you're Join me in thanking them. Alan Dobson from the Bedfordshire, Cambridgeshire and Hertfordshire Major Crime Unit. Jocelyn Price and Sarah Hall. They're from the Biomedical and Forensic Science Department at Anglia Ruskin University. David Spiegelhorter from the Statistics Laboratory. John Simons from the Memory Laboratory. And Sophie van Der Zee from the Computer Laboratory. They're all at Cambridge University. Thank you also to Danielle Blackwell, Ginny Smith and Georgia Mills for production and an extra thank you to the Forensic Science Department at Anglia Ruskin University who provided all of the equipment to help us set up our crime scene. You've been listening to The Naked Scientist, which comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the EPSRC, the STFC and Rolls-Royce. Do join us next time for a special look at the science of Easter, including a way to unboil an egg. Until next time, from me, Chris Smith, goodbye.